0: Hi, welcome everyone, this is Anshuman Bapna for the Terra.2 podcast on climate change in India. And I have with me today Mahua Acharya, who has done some incredible work and is currently the Asia Director at CPRI. Welcome aboard, Mahua.
1: Thanks, Anshuman, thank you for this and thank you, Kirti, for finding me. You're doing something really fascinating, but look forward to this conversation.
0: They're fantastic. I think podcast is now the equivalent of what photography was for midlife prices earlier. It's the new thing for, <laughs> uh, for folks like us now. But thank you so much, Mahua. And I'll probably jump right in, which is you've had an eclectic career. You've, in the past two decades, you've worked on climate finance in many geographies, Washington, D.C., South Korea, Indonesia, and India now. And you've also worked at many types of organizations. And I think the most interesting was the MA work that you were doing at ArcelorMittal, and then of course at multilaterals and so on. You've been at the intersection of so many different worlds, and for our audience, would you be able to please begin by telling us what is climate finance, first of all, and what do you think are its ultimate objectives?
1: Sure. It's been a deliberate move on my part to be at the cross-section of public and private, it's been a goal for me to use the means of traditional finance, traditional commercial finance, to achieve the goals of environmentalism, if I can put it that way. So climate finance would be just that, that if we ever were to move all finance towards a society that we want, a society that's clean, a one that's high on technology, one that responds to incentives in a direction that we would like it to go. To me, that would be climate finance. Today, there are many definitions out there, but really the essence is not the definition or the semantics of it. It's essentially money for moving into an economic pathway that is clean, green, efficient, inclusive. And I would put inclusive there. It's so important to India. That would be climate finance for me.
0: And now you mentioned inclusivity as an important part of climate finance. What is an example that you think would be the best example of a choice that could be inclusive or not inclusive that India has in front of you?
1: I think all Indians will appreciate that we're a country that has just about every problem that you can think of, That's right. where you can find a product that will sell to to the richest of the rich, as much as you make a product that is priced at Point that sells the most. So there is a market for everything here. It is also nobody's guess that a big, big part of our economy is still very poor. While India is often under pressure to reduce emissions, is often under pressure to change pathways, is often under lots of pressure on a number of things. What is also true is that we just have so many people that are still just extremely poor. So when you make a product, when you make a service, as far as the market goes, as far as just making any sort of transformation goes, it has to reach these people. It has to reach the majority of our economy. It has to reach the majority of our population. So to me, that would be, well, the decision is when you make a product or a service, it has to be accessible. It's not as if it's got to be free or it has to necessarily be subsidized. But it has to be priced in a way in our thinking such that we appeal and we produce the goods and services that are available to the majority of this country. To me, that will be inclusive and our growth will have to be inclusive, has to take on board the majority of the problems that this country faces.
0: Well, one of the words you used was uh, accessibility and which kind of brings me to this interesting question that we ran into in one of our previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. which was around energy access and especially for the poorest. So we had mm-hmm. Harish Hande, who's the founder of Selco on our podcast. And he made mm-hmm. this interesting point about coming up with financing solutions that don't just finance uh, consumption of energy, mm-hmm. but they also help build assets that help individuals escape mm-hmm. energy poverty for good. And his critique was that this was often missed, especially I think the example he was using was things like off-grid solar, the way it has been done in Africa. How do you think about this issue? How important do you think it is to have not just a consumptive model, but also a kind of a financing model that builds assets?
1: Very important. I would say it's front and center. You know, It's just as important for us to produce large-scale power plants as much as it's important for us to produce power that reaches the consumers that Harish Hande's company reaches. And we don't have enough of financing solutions. And at least from what I'm saying, financing solutions would be, to what extent can finance... Help you overcome the risks that are inherent to investors in supplying, in this case, power to lower-income consumers. Often that is overlooked, and why is it overlooked? Because it's risky. The returns are not good enough. But even if the returns were good enough, you can still pad them up with additional capital. But the factor is still risky. So money doesn't move there, and systematically, money doesn't move there. So we have to find ways through. I would argue through financial engineering, and of course, there's a huge amount of work that policy support is needed, but there's a massive amount that financial engineering can do in creating the risk mitigation products that are needed. You were talking about energy access to get energy access to, I won't even say lower income, but lower paying populations. And they happen to be lower income populations. They happen to be people off the grid. They happen to be so far away from the grid that it's too expensive for the grid to extend to their homes. So we need many more products to find investment into those areas because money will otherwise just not move to those areas unless you make a concerted effort to push that capital that side.
0: Makes sense. And that's a very critical point, which also is uniquely Indian in that sense, which is that you have this very vast uh, uh, range of uh, scales that you have to operate at. Individual, community, often at the bottom of the pyramid, but also obviously nationally. And in fact, I thought maybe this will be a good segue into that, which is, if you look at India's challenge, I mean, India's challenge is not just to fund a large renewable energy build out, but also to make us uh, climate resilient. That means everything from reforestation to smart cities and urban infrastructure. So how do you see the unique challenges that climate finance has for India? And where do you see the gaps?
1: I'm very glad, Anshuman, that you're saying India's challenge is climate resilience. India is doing a lot of great work on renewables and it's taken, and I would say in, in my career, I find that the biggest tipping point is probably India on climate change and with its aggressive renewable target. So while that's excellent, The real problem in India with climate is climate resilience, meaning climate change is going to hit us one way or the other, and it already is. It's hitting us in our weather patterns or in the agricultural business. We have reduced productivity in so many areas, so many. It's not rocket science. Most people know where the reduced productivity is. Our water tables are reducing. In in just my own house in Bangalore, it was at 600 feet, and to a lot of people in Bangalore, 600 feet is very accessible. To many others, it's shocking. Today, 15 years later, that water table is at 1200 feet and probably not accessible anymore.
0: Mm.
1: It's happening to us in ways that you can see. And I would say, in my career today, I can see climate change happening in front of me. I spent my college years in Bangalore in a home that did not it certainly did not have ACs. Bangalore houses did not have air conditioners. And some rooms did not even have fans. Somewhere along the way, we installed fans in those rooms that did not have fans. But now we have ACs in at least two bedrooms. That was not the case in just in my career. And I'm mid-career. I still have 20, 30 years ago. So it's happening in front of me. It's happening in front of all of us. And so the, the question is not... How are we going to mitigate climate change? Of course, we're going to mitigate climate change. And of course, we have a role to play. We're one of the biggest economies in the world, we're the biggest population. But climate change is going to hit us. So it's up to us to figure out how resilient can we become because it's an inevitability.
0: So what are the tools of the trade that climate finance has for solving for this? Because I remember there were some green bonds that we had floated sometime, but it hasn't really caught fire yet. So when you look at, the different tools at our disposal as far as climate finance is concerned, what are they? And where do you see the biggest gaps right now?
1: Okay, so climate finance is nothing but money that is going towards low-carbon activities or climate-resilient investments. Now, we need much more of climate finance. We need much more capital to go towards these lower-carbon, more efficient, greener kind of investments. Now, money will not travel there Just like that. So just as we were talking about energy access and the kind of risks there, there are risks in areas that traditional capital will not flow. So what is missing as far as climate finance is concerned right now is this body of I would say risk-reducing instruments, these large financial products that can come in between the capital that is sitting there and willing to be deployed looking for great opportunities for that capital to be deployed. We need these investments to make money. And on the investment side, we need the projects to become bankable. We need them to become bigger. We need them to be structured better. We need them to be reliable. We need them to be predictable so that the investors can make money and continue doing that. Now, in between that is this vast sort of gray area where all kinds of instruments are needed, and they reduce risk. They either take care of financial uncertainty. You have things like lumpy incomes. Since again, you were talking about energy access in that business, one of the biggest risks for an investor is that you never know whether you get paid back. You can't predict whether the income will be stable month on month or it'll be lumpy once in four, five months and then nothing for the next two, three months, right? So there's a big body of financial products that are needed to get much more climate finance into the system and much more money to just simply chase the green stuff. And those instruments can be things like bonds. So why are bonds so popular? Because you can scale them. You can raise large amounts of capital with bonds. You get guarantee products. There's a big need for guarantees to payment. An investor needs that kind of security that he or she will get paid back then you need lots of loans. These loans have to be longer term. You were talking about climate resilience. It's a really difficult sector to invest in because the returns from things like climate resilient infrastructure are not so apparent. So while you and I might agree that if we build a road and it floods in a certain area, that you and I may just know that in a few hours the road is going to give way. But if we make the road higher, It's going to cost more. Am I going to get paid more as an investor to build a higher road? Not likely. Not until at least the regulations require me to build a higher road. So we don't have that. We need this body of products that will cover the risk. And some of the risk will be transitionary, meaning risks that are needed now. And maybe that risk will go away in some years in a certain sector. So I would say that's really what's needed.
0: So what I like about the way you're describing this is that there is almost this market-making function that innovation in climate finance has to serve, which is there are certain kinds of models where the expected value by in the near future might not be as high. But when you combine that with climate risk, that becomes a no-brainer over a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year kind of a time frame. And the way someone like a CPI comes in is to actually run these experiments and figure out what works uniquely in the Indian context. Is that a fair reading, that uh, this is a critical role that, that CPI does play?
1: The answer is yes. That's a critical role that CPI should do more of. But I would say more than that, it's going to need any more CPI before we even think of addressing this problem anywhere. So I would almost say, of course it's innovation, but I think it's more mainstream than innovation. The need is much bigger. Innovation tends to be exotic. And of course, it's great. You know, we need much more innovation, but I would say we need much more pushing the boundaries. And what I mean by that is we need to push the boundaries of public and private finance a lot more than we currently do. Public finance is very happy in its comfort zone as much as private finance is. But then the fact is that necessarily to come together because we need private capital to move into these areas and we need the public capital, the little that there is, to be just used better, meaning used in ways that can cover the risk and used in ways that will have the maximum bang for the buck because it's, it's in such shortage. Of course, there isn't enough public capital. So you need many more CPIs. And I would say you need our financial institutions and our public finance entities to seriously come together. And think about how together they can look at addressing risks on a sector-by-sector basis. So we need much more pushing the boundaries.
0: That's a great point. Let's take maybe a specific climate finance idea, say green bonds. And Mm -hmm. these these have been done across the world by many different municipalities and cities and regions. And fairly successfully at that. Now, if we were to take that idea, it has been piloted also in India in a couple of different ways, if I remember correctly. If we were to take this idea and scale this up and get public-private partnerships in place, what is stopping that from being the default way cities actually think about their financing right now, for example?
1: Without going into a big laundry list of what the issues are, sure. let's put it in very simple terms, our cities are, are not money-making entities. We don't do that much collection. Our collection rates in cities are not so great. Our balance sheets are therefore a bit shaky. So the big need when you issue a bond, bond is nothing but an IOU, is you have to convince the investor that I will pay you back. Now the I will pay you back is a function of your balance sheet. Is your balance sheet strong enough that you can pay investors back? So I would say that's the first thing that's holding up a lot of our financing. And the thing with bonds, I mean, not even green bonds, before I can get to green bonds, is many of our entities are not able to issue these bonds. And the thing with green bonds is you've got two issues. So it's coming up. It's not as if there are roadblocks right now. But green bonds need a stack of green assets underneath it. You need the projects underneath it. So you need the projects before you can go out and raise money for them. These projects have to be bankable, meaning they need to be structured well and you need to be able to put money into them. And so we have a hard time structuring those projects. And I think a lot more effort needs to be put into building that portfolio. The other thing with green bonds is that right now it is just expensive. And I'll, I'll be honest about it. It's a lot more expensive than normal bonds. because It takes much more time. Have the pricing thing it takes longer. It's just a much more expensive endeavor. So until such time, the market responds to the need for many more green bonds. They will always have this one notch in a higher expense than normal bonds. So this is just the tip of the iceberg. As far as cities go, why is it that we're not able to raise more money? I would just say the cities themselves are not bankable.
0: And I think that's often evident in the city that you and I live in, which is mm-hmm. Milor. Now, talking about bankability, which is, uh, I think it brings up also what is happening in the renewable infrastructure build out, right? which is, As you pointed out, there's been remarkable progress in the past many years, but the last 18 months haven't really been the best. And I wanted you to kind of take a look at that and talk about what do you see the challenges there because there's everything from unsustainable utility rates to utilities actually not even being able to necessarily pay the PPAs that they had signed up on. Is that something that you think is like just a bump in the road or there are structural things that should give us pause right now?
1: They're all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) I can as well say it's a bump in the road and be very optimistic and it's going to get cleaned up. But experts in the power industry will also look at me and say, are you seriously telling me there's nothing wrong with the power sector? So it's all of the above. But if I were to say, just pick three things that went wrong in the last 18 months in the renewables business, in the renewable sector, are solar prices fell very quickly. So while that's a great thing, there's a lot of power purchase agreements that were signed when prices were higher. And then power for, in this country is a state matter. So you had some states that simply said, oh, but these contracts were signed earlier and why am I paying so much money for them? Those contracts were signed at a time that power purchase was a bit more expensive. The solar power was a lot more expensive. So you had some states that did turn around on contracts and stopped paying. So we have companies that I know of, some of whose MDs I know very well, uh, who have not been paid for 11 months, 12 months, maybe longer. And that is not sustainable. That power purchase agreement was signed at the time that was considered, at that time, that was a technology price and that was the price of the equipment and was signed at that time. Then, of course, distribution companies don't pay. The last number I saw was almost 90,000 crores in outstanding bills. So they don't pay. Now, they don't pay for a number of reasons. Many are struggling financially. Many question the price of these power purchase agreements because since the time that they were signed, today power is a lot cheaper. But there's a third, slightly more technical thing that is developing is that a lot of distribution companies are discounts don't want daytime power. And what I mean by that is some of our grids have reached a point of surplus generation, meaning there's more green power coming into the system than they had anticipated. While that's a positive problem in the world of negative problems and positive problems, it poses a a risk to the DISCOM. The DISCOM just has to pay a lot more to receive that power that it didn't otherwise Expect to get. So it receives it and then ends up paying a much higher charge than what was in the power purchase agreement. So we have the problem from both sides. So to put it simply, there has been 18 months of, I don't want to say turmoil, but lots of ups and downs in the renewable energy sector. And there have been, of course, other policy problems. We started bidding out. Plans, the acquisition of, of power was bid out, which is great. It was bid out for under what's called reverse auction, meaning people asked to bid down and the lowest one wins. Some of these prices became unsustainable. And then at some point we put a, a ceiling price to it as well. So that didn't work. So there's a host of small, small things like that that caused a lot of problems in the renewable energy sector in the last 18 months. There have been some changes in the last few weeks and months. But I think the biggest elephant in the room is non-payment by the discounts. Unless we can fix that, unless you can trust that the entity you're getting into a contract with is going to honor that contract, investors are just going to have a hard time. And money is just not going to go. It's not just have a hard time. Money is not going to go into that sector. And this is an age-old problem with the power sector in India. So back to your question, you know, is it a, a short-term problem or is it a serious problem? It's a very, very serious problem as well in the power sector, that our discounts are in financial trouble, they buy high and sell low, and are constantly struggling.
0: So is there potentially climate finance innovation, maybe a large fund that acts as the guarantor on these power purchase agreements, in the belief that these discoms will get reformed over a period of time and will eventually become sustainable in this green grid economy. Is that something that makes any sense? Is that too large? Is that too crazy?
1: I think the problem is so large. And in this problem, I would say finance cannot solve it. It needs a, a massive regulation change. So that's one. Now, before we get there, we all need power. You and I need the lights on. So we can't make that change overnight. It's been built over years and decades and decades of all sorts of regulations. So let's not get to things that we cannot fix right now. Now, to what extent can financial engineering and financial products make some sort of change? It can, to a very large extent, but then you need a whole slew of them, right? So you were talking about guarantee products. If the distribution company doesn't pay the investor, yeah, sure. There's a need for a product that will safeguard the investor from delayed payments. I've heard of entities who say, let's make a fund where we can give the discount some money should they not pay. And I feel that you know, there's a moral problem there. If the discount doesn't pay, it's not them that needs to be bailed out. It's the it's the developer. So there is a world of guarantees that are needed there. There's a world of other instruments as well. Let's not forget that technology is coming up. Battery- prices are coming down. Batteries play a very important role because they allow you to store the power and provide that same power when the sun doesn't shine. So during the day, any excess sunshine or any excess generation or if you've if had a windy season, any excess generation can then be stored when you fall short. And generally, you fall short in the evenings. When you go home, everybody switches on their fans, ACs and their lights. So you're going to need much more power in the evenings when the sun is not shining batteries play a very critical role, if not the only role. Now, the thing is we need some products there to tide over the current exorbitant cost of batteries. Now, battery prices are coming down, but they're not yet at a point where they're competitive. So if I had some extra money to help a discount, I I would think about putting a portion of that into batteries so that they can absorb as much of the green power that is coming during the day. So there's a lot of products that you can make in that space. But the thing is, these products have to be big. Just like anything in India, it has to be of scale.
0: Right. And I think that was a great example. In fact, one of the things that I came across was something called the Lab at CPI, which has yet just been chosen by MacArthur's 100 and Change program as one of the top scoring proposals for for its $100 million grant. So congratulations on that, first of all also wanted to ask you, what are the interesting ideas brewing in the India version of the lab right now? What are the ones that excite you the most?
1: Let me pick one that I help by being on the board of. And they're, in fact, even in Bangalore, they're a financing entity for electric auto rickshaws. They're thinking of financing other electric two-wheelers as well. But why are they cool? Because they've got a product that will help an auto driver get an electric auto instead of the old Diesel auto. And that product is catered and customized to the needs of of auto drivers through technology. So this was an idea that came up through the lab, and then I've spent the last few months helping them go out and raise money, thinking through them with them about all kinds of innovative structures, how best to raise money. Because at the end of the day, they're a specific financing company only for auto for electric autos, but they provide the loan at a cheaper price than if the auto driver were to go to a bank or some other source of financing. So here you have a legitimate product at scale that is only focused on electric auto rickshaws. I think that's wonderful.
0: Now, I'm glad, by the way, that you picked up this example. This is Three Wheels United, right?
1: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: I'm, I actually met Cedric, two weeks back and was just amazed by the quality of work and the thinking there.
1: They're fabulous.
0: Yeah. And one of the most interesting things he talked about was this whole uh, idea, which is quite ambitious, was to essentially finance, to raise sufficient capital so that they could buy out all non-electric autos, scrap Mm -hmm. them, and Mm -hmm. substitute them with electric autos, which I think is just like such a brilliant idea if we could figure out the platform for it and seems like they've done enough work to be able to get there.
1: Yes, absolutely. So these are ideas that came out through the lab and kudos to them to make the application and go through the the process of the lab. But these are some of the more fun, innovative ideas that are now reaching scale. And I would encourage you to keep in touch with Cedric. He's fantastic. He's very, very innovative. And you need that kind of optimism if you're looking to push boundaries.
0: And that is the great part about What I find personally very exciting about climate, which is the amount of economic transformation opportunities that it throws up for entrepreneurs, it's almost once in a lifetime. And that's the question I had for you, which is if you could stand on a pulpit and reach Indian entrepreneurs of all kinds, where would you ask them to focus on? Where would you tell them the biggest opportunities are?
1: I would say that their world tomorrow is not the same world today. And what I mean by that is Normal people like you and I are making choices that the generation before us did not make. We are willing to spend a little bit more to fix our air pollution problem. We don't have a fix right now, but I'd be willing to do that. We are willing to spend the extra effort to not take a plastic bag when we go grocery shopping. We make the effort needed to keep a few cloth bags in the car. We are going to run out of water. So we will need to find a way to conserve water and make it available more in a more efficient way. So our tomorrow's future and the way our economy is evolving is towards greener, more efficient. A lot, most, many, many of our government programs are not just low cost this and that, but low cost efficient this and that, low cost green this and that. So we're integrating it. I think there is a realization that greener choices are going to be cheaper over time. Efficient choices are definitely cheaper over time. That's been tried and tested the world over. So our tomorrow will be in solutions like this. Our tomorrow will be companies that are providing the same basic goods and services, but in ways that just simply are more resource efficient. So if I were to tell entrepreneurs where would you focus on? I would just say it is a more sustainable pathway. I wouldn't say climate resilient because not everybody gets it. And it's, it's also slightly, you know, it's a difficult concept. It's also very encompassing, but more sustainable pathways is where I'd say the needs are. And that's where the market is going to move towards.
0: That's fantastic. Just last, a personal question for you, which is if, Everything goes according to your plan over the next five years. What would remarkable success on uh, sustainability, on climate action look like for India? And what is it that you personally would really hope for and dream for?
1: I think in five years, our biggest opportunity is in the power sector. Our power sector is going through a change right now. And the change right now is that our power sector is receiving a whole lot more renewables. We just spoke about that. But in parallel, we're seeing so much of movement around electric vehicles. We will see many more Cedrics come up. We have many more Three Wheels United out there. Many more auto rickshaws that are battery-based electric and many more cars and buses. Bangalore has has lots of electric buses. Electric vehicle sector is going to develop, which means our battery prices will come. And we know that battery prices are coming down, but there'll be more batteries purchased so it means prices will come down. And then what's happening in pillar, so I'd say there are three pillars going on right now, is that the carbon markets business is coming back up again. There was a crash last year at the Paris Agreement, and people hoped that we would get the, the rules organized, but these things happen in political agreements. But I think the world has come to realize that carbon markets are an important means to reducing the cost of compliance. So carbon markets will come. They will be a little different from the way we saw them 10 years ago. So now that's developing in parallel. Right now, these things are developing in parallel, but there will come a point that these three pillars will talk to each other. And when that happens, yours and my homes will not necessarily be dependent on the grid. Maybe we'll have our own electricity supply, and maybe we can consume that. We can decide how we want to consume it. Maybe our parking lots will become net generators of, of electricity. Our parking lots today only store cars and. They hardly make money doing that. Maybe they will make additional money by providing the extra charge to the grid. So maybe you'll have carbon markets where the carbon money will be internalized into the financial package early on, as opposed to not being traded year on year. We should see these three things coming together. And five years is about the right time. So your question was very relevant in terms of time, as far as this, this ambition is in my head, that five years is about, enough time for us to see this merging of these three sectors. And that means we will have a very different electricity system, a very different power system, a very different transportation system, and much more use of batteries for all sorts of things that we will do from at the consumer level all the way up to the industrial and commercial level.
0: Wow, that sounds like a revolution in the next five years. And I think You're right, which is that India has the opportunity to leapfrog this in many different ways. And we've made a good start, but I think there's tons of stuff to be still done. And I'm really glad that you spent the time talking to us about a topic that actually does not get as much attention for folks who are outside the climate change debate, which is to understand the critical role that finance can play in mobilizing uh, lots of capital to go after innovations and build-outs that can change the game. Marwa, thank you so much for taking the time. It was wonderful to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Anshuman. Thank you for for doing this and for Kirti for organizing and and finding me and and setting it all up. You're doing something very exciting, very important. And before the podcast, I was asking you what kind of audience is this? I think you've hit the audience absolutely spot on. There are so many people that I come across want to work on climate change, but who have a hard time trying to figure out what they would do in climate change and what exactly that would mean. So this initiative that you have is is fantastic. I know I already know many people who will benefit
0: from something like this. Thank you so much, Mahua. Please send them our way.
1: <laughs> I will. Thank you, Anshuman. Thanks for this.